Welcome to the 12th episode of the Uneasy Podcast. My name is Isis. This podcast is about many of the conversations we go over and over in our minds. In this 12th episode, we will continue our conversation with my mentor, Garth, as we discuss how the legacy of not being real with yourself goes deeper than you think. So be prepared to do some digging. I want to give a huge thank you to Garth for his time, thoughtfulness, and amazing mind. Garth shared so many gems and pieces of wisdom. I was able to construct four episodes that I am extremely excited to share with you. Thank you so much to Garth for help taking the Uneasy podcast to another level. I will continue to correlate such uneasy ideas of our reactive and uninformed behavior to the book I recently wrote titled Dupala. The title is spelled U-P-A-L-A, and it is available for purchase on CreateSpace if you want a printed copy, or on Amazon if you'd like to get yourself an ebook. I want to mention I've included my email on the first page of the book, and I want to encourage you to reach out and share your uneasy thoughts, reactions, suggestions, and stories. I want to gather all of your input and with your permission to share, create our own series of episodes featuring topics you would like for me to discuss. So please leave me comments, email me, join my Facebook page, send me a tweet, all of which can be found under my company name, QuasiSounds. That's Q-U-A-S-I-S-O-U-N-D-S. We ended our last episode with Alicia and our discussion of rejecting our culture in order to be considered by the decision makers. We all want to be part of the winning team, but is it worth compromising or denying who you are? I just did a mixtape for um, OK Africa not too long ago. The OK Player uh, platform, it's all like content from that continent, artists and musicians and producers and DJs or whatever that they cover. I have a a mixtape series called Africa in Your Earbuds. And um, I think I did like number 59 or something like that. So I did like an all vinyl mix. And one of the things I did was I, I grabbed some thematic audio clips of people talking about skin bleaching creams and things like that, you know, because it's that's a billion dollar business. And it's just it's horrifying the statistics it's just it's deep man it's deep i remember when um henry Louis gates jr basically continued a project that was started by web the boys encyclopedia africana i think it was called and one of the things that came out of it was him trekking through africa for it was like a pb ended up being like a pbs special it didn't cease to amaze me like every time i watched it and he'd be somewhere one of his conversation pieces was trying to find out who people were and where they're from, like in Africa. And you had like these blue black men and women telling him that they weren't black Africans. You know, these two guys with kinky hair, broad noses, dark skin, who were telling him they were Arabs. We're Arab. No, we're not black, we're Arab. And that just bugged me out. I was like, wow, this is not just a problem here in the States. You know, this is everywhere. And, and the more I looked, India, Asia, South America, it wasn't just about the West. This is a global problem. Hawaii, I mean, it doesn't matter. The world has been duped by the construct of white supremacy. And the sad thing is the majority of the world is filled with color. It's a colorful world. And so for people to base their standard on how light they are is uh it's a pretty phenomenal feat that was pulled off through the media through conditioning through presentation of perceived standards of beauty it's really amazing to me like it makes me it's one of those things that i'm very sad about but it's like man 
the reasons why I keep trying to do what I do. You know, not that I'm out there preaching or anything, but I think playing music that's antithetical to the mainstream has its place in, you know, a fight of sorts or help in the fight, you know. It's as quiet of a war as, you know, the media's war is on people, you know, because even though it's, to me, it's, it's very, the media is very loud. It's very in your face. It's very shoved down your throat. It's, it's one of those things that's a, a silent weapon. There's an, uh, an essay that I read years ago called uh, Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, and it's basically about how the ruling class was able to use the media to condition the world. If you're constantly conditioned to associate certain types of people with negative traits, how can you not have an adverse reaction when in their presence or automatically assume they are the culprit of any wrongdoing? What if these negative stereotypes are utilized to describe you? Would you accept or reject these traits? Would you live up to such damaging expectations? Or would you deny your race and culture altogether? In episode nine with Alicia, we also talked about the behavior of abandoning yourself in order to seem more appealing. There's a scene in the book where Apollo finds herself standing in front of bags of Jamaican jerk chicken flavored potato chips, right after missing the opportunity to stand up and define what her culture and race means to her and to correct any negative stereotypes her peers may accept it about her. We've all seen such flavored potato chips, but I wanted this scene to show that while Paula may be having a hard time owning her uniqueness, her culture, her tradition, there are those who are just as ready to capitalize and monetize on her exact rejection. In the book, Upala is raised by her single mother. As we later learn, her father's absence is due to his insecurities of not feeling prepared and unable to provide for his young family. While I was developing the relationship between mother-daughter, father-daughter, there was an underlying feeling that I felt Garth perfectly articulated. There, present, but emotionally unavailable. And I think that that was um, passed on to them by their fathers. You know, my stepdad, for instance, he was close with his dad, but close in a different way. You know, it was, um, there was an understanding there. There was no real open dialogue between them. Neither one of my fathers ever talked to me really about sex. But what I do know and what I've learned even more so since becoming an adult is that this is a huge worldwide problem. And one of the reasons why so many of the different problems that we have as men uh, in relation to women continue, um, whether it's sexism or rape or whatever, it's because the dialogue is a lot of the time absent. And there's so many stigmas and taboos. Boys grow up without a great deal of knowledge and they have to try and figure things out for themselves and it's very dangerous. Part of that emotional unavailability would be with the sexual education. There were comments and jokes and there was like this, looking back, there was like this, this strange expectation that he's gonna learn it whether or not. It's out there, he's gonna, he's gonna figure it out. If I'm gonna go into this deep dark cave, I'd like a flashlight if possible, rather than to just be feeling around. And I think that's a part of it. And so even though there are good men who have raised their kids and been available and you know, they're not the, the runaways and the Peter Pans, there's a certain kind of emotional absentee thing that's happened a lot with you know maybe maybe you know this crosses the, the the cultural color boundaries but the black community a lot there's just been this like emotional 
blankness I think for a long time and I think that with both my dads to a degree I you know experienced that but you know they were they were there they were present we just didn't really talk about feelings that's I think what I mean more so about the emotional thing is we didn't there was no dialogue about emotion and there needs to be it's supposed to be that way and uh, a lot of the time it isn't and I've read great articles and passages out of books and all kinds of stuff over the years as an adult that have helped me navigate the past of what was going on there because it didn't feel right as a kid why is the woman the only resource for emotion and the man not demonstrating what it means to be emotionally kind of fit as a male I think that the the, the study of um, the prison culture goes back even further and this subject it really has to do with one of the the initiatives for slavery or within slavery you know that was part of how you know this ruling class was able to dominate was through sexuality and the manipulation of that and there was there's so many different protocols that were put into place to ensure that this would be the outcome so that we're looking at this you know four or five generations six generations you know however many generations we are later and like you said it's so far deep down and we i mean we have to dig so deep just to get to it and to be aware of it and to not be in denial about it um you have to just look at it like we have to put something in reverse and travel just as far to, to arrive at a place where we can start to crack it open you know sometimes it seems very hopeless and you know who knows i mean i'm not i don't i wouldn't call myself a pessimist but i'm also not sure i'm an optimist i i am a hopeful person though i i maintain hope even in uh <laughs> what what can be the most dire or hopeless situations and i think it's very difficult to do especially when it becomes very personal that idea of prison culture and and, and black masculinity you know being a target that was target from from day one, from this culture looking at that culture and saying, how are we going to dominate, to, to ensure this revenue stream works for us for a long time, you know? And that's, that, that's how they did it, you know? That's how it was perpetrated. Take the man and make him a boy permanently. Take the woman and make her the man permanently, emotionally, sexually, mentally, spiritually, the whole thing. It is the, like you said, the depths of it, it's just astonishing, you know, how deep it is, like the rabbit hole. It's a, it's a crazy one. I would consider myself um, a humanitarian and I love all people and I don't think any one race or culture is better than another. I never have, uh, never will. I don't practice it, I don't meditate on it. I, I, I'm aware that at the root, you know, and at the core, we all come from one place. But that whole idea of dating outside your race, fine if you know who you are, if you love who you are, if you know yourself and you love yourself enough to know. Because otherwise, you know, you're looking for a solution to a problem that can't be fixed outside of yourself. And it's unfortunate. And I think that that we can play it down and people do, you know, there's all sorts of buttery rhetoric that you hear all the time. In previous episodes, we discussed the notion of searching for something outside of ourselves to feel better within. 
Now I am not an advocate of this. Please do not try this at home. You will never find peace no matter how many distractions you've accumulated. It is important we get real with ourselves and where we come from. And nobody but yourself will have the answer or offer you comfort. There's a moment in the book when Upala realizes she's the first black girlfriend of Timmy's after discovering a picture of all of Timmy's ex-girlfriends whom all fall in line with this idea of American beauty. Upala starts to question what exactly Timmy is searching for himself. And after witnessing constant microaggressions between Timmy and his friends, which Timmy never stands up for himself or corrects mild racist jokes, Upala begins to doubt whether Timmy is completely committed and honest about his feelings of his race and place in American society. Not necessarily for us to judge, but I do think that dialogue is healthy. If we could get past all this judging and we could just rather explore dialogue and kind of uh, you know, look at things for what they really are, maybe we could get somewhere, but we're not interested in that. As a culture right now, we are so not there. No one, I don't really see much in the way of people listening. I see quick defenses. I see guardedness and constant sort of um, readiness to deflect in this, this armor that's always on people. Everybody, not just black, uh, but everybody. Everybody is just like quick to speak. And uh, you know, we all just need to shut up and allow exploration and dialogue and, and be more willing to listen. And, but it starts in the micro. It starts in our own personal relationships. It even starts with ourselves. You know, we, it's like people want to ignore just our own conscious and seek, seek other means of comfort and, you know, solution. I mean, I struggle with it personally, too. It's just like, stop, pay attention to yourself and listen to yourself and figure your own thing out first. Um, we're, we're just really quick to, and it's a big part of our culture is judgment. You know, I mean, we're, we're always judging. And then we also, I think, turn that inward and base our own self-judgment system on these uh, antithetical standards that have been set up by a ruling class a ruling class controlled media, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's horrendous. <laughs> I think, I think what people also need to understand is the ruling class defines themselves by you or these opposites or the people they're trying to control. Cause without you, they're nothing. If you weren't there to rule over, they wouldn't have any, any stance. And so you have these people who are in control teaching you how to perceive yourself not realizing they'd be nothing without you. And I think that if we were to change our perspective and like you said, look inward and be okay with ourselves, that whatever they are telling you how to think and feel wouldn't be relevant ever because you're gonna be you no matter what and they need you to be them. There's nothing about them. It was all about them defining themselves in relationship to, or in relation to someone who is the opposite of who they are. So when you have an opposition, then, then who are you then? And it's, I think people, are giving these people so much power, not realizing that how much power they hold themselves. And there's also great distraction and, um, you know, these kinds of, you know, I would call them silly oppositions. This power structure has, you know, been aware of that since day one. If we can, for instance, if, if we can take this group of people and from them create an opposite group of people based on skin color, we have created an opposition that can last for generations, light skin, dark skin, you know, whatever. And it's, it's still 
prevalent. And it's, it's, a, it's a global phenomenon. I mean, it's probably worse than it's ever been, quite honestly. There's so much to explore and there are so many layers, some of which are a direct relation to ourselves and others we've inherited and will continue to carry with us if we don't acknowledge it. It is very naive and completely insensitive to claim that we are all past it, especially when constant reminders and repeated behaviors keep happening. I agree. We are at our worst, and I cringe at the notion or the insinuation by a person claiming to have transcended or risen above everything we've overcome and are presently drowning in. I also want to keep the discussion of our prison system alive and how it is so closely related to slavery and masculinity. I'm currently reading two books, From the Plantation to the Prison, African American Confinement Literature, and also Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman. I encourage you to check out both books before your next discussion about institutionalized confinement and incarceration, especially with the recent events in Baltimore. Also, in response to Baltimore, I've come up with a recommendation to America's penal system that I am excited to share with you in a separate episode. Next episode, we'll continue our discussion with Garth, and we're going to do something a little different as we start a conversation about why fight for what we consider is right and pure, especially when you feel like you do not measure up to the thing that you are opposing. When you see pictures of the protests in Baltimore, do you have a sense of hope, or do you question how influential these discussions will have on current policy? Send me your answers, and please check out next episode. Also, please rate this episode. Leave a comment, subscribe to the Uneasy Podcast. I would love to hear from you. For more details about this episode, please visit QuasiSound's website. I've included my notes for this episode, as well as the music I sprinkled throughout the show. And while you're there, please buy my book, Upala. I sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to the Uneasy Podcast.